Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, to the end of the chapter. So let us stand for the reading of the Word of God. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet on the earth, and no plant in the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Halavah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. The delium and the onyx stone are there. And the name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of the ribs and closed up the flesh of that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. You may be seated. Well, today we come to the first Toledoth in the book of Genesis. You remember what a Toledoth is? We preached a whole sermon on it. The book of Genesis is divided into five sections, uh, ten sections. And each of these sections begins with the Hebrew word toledoth. And it means this is the outcome of, or this is the history that flows from, or this is the account of. It is a title for what follows, not a summary of what preceded. For instance, you see in our text today, in the fourth verse, this is the account of the heavens and the earth. What that means is, this is the history of the creation of the earth and the heavens. This is the outcome of the creation of the heavens and the earth. And it is concerned with God creating the main characters 
and props of the theater of grace on which main stage the drama of redemption will be played out. So this chapter, this Toledoth, this section begins with verse 4 of chapter 2 and goes all the way over to chapter, through chapter 4. And what does it do? Well, before I tell you what it does, critics of the Bible always try to make out that there's two accounts of creation and they contradict each other. The first account of creation is Genesis 1. The second account of creation is Genesis 2. And they disagree with each other. That proves there's errors in the Bible. Well, anybody that says that does not understand the word Toledoth. That this is not a second account of creation. Starting with verse 4 of chapter 2, this is a description of what follows from the creation of the world of the history that flowed out of chapter 1. And there are no contradictions. They say, well, look, in chapter 1, the order of creation is vegetation, animals, and man. And in chapter 2, the order is man, vegetation, and animals. Well, they're just looking for something because it's, it's not a restatement of creation. It's a description of the plants and foliage in the Garden of Eden. It's talking about plants that required in order to grow rain and the cultivation of man. In other words, it's talking about bulbs, roots, and seeds that have not yet sprouted, that require atoms cultivating them and rain. And there wasn't any rain. In the first days of creation, it was a mist. It was like a greenhouse that supplied water for all the living beings. So in this chapter 2, you are introduced to the main characters of this play. And you are introduced to the main props on the stage in this play. It's not chronological, it's topical. For instance, it starts out by talking about the Garden of Eden. Then it talks about the creation of man. And then it talks about the location of the Garden of Eden. And then it talks about the uh, divine, uh, divinely assigned call to Adam and what Adam would do. Uh, it talks about the covenant of works. It talks about the creation of woman. And it talks about the creation of marriage. There's not any chronology here. It's simply setting forth the characters and the props. That's going to be so important to the rest of human history. So let's look at this Toledoth. Chapter 2, verse 4. This is the outcome of the creation of the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now notice in chapter 2 another reason they give to show that it's two different uh, stories is that in chapter 1 the creator is called Elohim and in chapter 2 he's called Jehovah Elohim. So that must be two different gods. And therefore there's two stories of creation originating with two different gods. Well, God has all kinds of names in the Bible. And it's interesting that in this chapter, he's not only called Jehovah, he's called Jehovah Elohim. What do you do with that? That the names are blended. There's not one name that's big enough to catch all of the power and glory and excellencies of God. He's, but he's given different names on purpose. Uh, to, it all depends on the situation. In chapter 1, God is called Elohim because it, it means the Almighty One. The mighty God who's able to call something out of nothing. And so here that's a suitable name for God in chapter 1. Chapter 2, he's still called Elohim, but he's also called Jehovah. Because that's the covenant name of God. 
That's the name that God gave himself to Moses. It means I am that I am. I'm the God who is. I have, I'm not changeable. I'm eternal. I am what I am because that's the way I want to be. And I am the covenant Lord of Israel. So now we're going to talk about the fall and redemption. And it's important to know that this creator that's involved in all this is the covenant God, the Savior of his people. Because you see, what's happening in chapter 2 is God is preparing for the fall and the redemption of man. And if you're going to understand those events in history, you've got to understand the characters and the props that he brings out in this section. Verse 5, Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not set rain on the earth, and there was no man to cultivate him. He's talking about various bulbs and things that have to be cultivated by man. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then, in the Garden of Eden, what's so important about telling you about the Garden of Eden? What did we say? Because it's also called the Garden of God. It's God's home. And Adam was created in God's home on earth. Adam was created in fellowship with God, and it was sin that broke that fellowship. And now through Christ, it must be restored. So now we have another statement on the creation of man. We already read about it up here in verse 27. It said, uh, And God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. We made the point. We'll make it again. God's the one that determines your sex. God's the one that determines your gender. And it's permanent. You cannot change your gender. You cannot change your sex. You can mutilate yourself. But a man can never become a woman. And a woman can never become a man. And now he's going to give a more detailed description he says then the Lord God that is Jehovah Elohim the covenant God of Israel and creator of the world formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being that's not a metaphor that's the way God did it. It's an actual description of the creation of the first man. God formed the shape of man out of dust of the ground. doesn't say he shaped the body of man. He shaped a man. We'll get that in a minute. You notice? Formed man, not just the body of man, but formed man of dust from the ground. And then when he breathed, into man's nostrils the breath of life man became a living soul he didn't become a body with a soul he became a living soul so in this one verse you have a description of the constitution of man man's not a soul locked up in a body Man is not some kind of mechanism that doesn't have a soul at all, just physical. Man doesn't have three parts, body, soul, and spirit. Man is his body. And man is his soul. Man is a living soul whose body was made of dust and into whose nostrils God breathed the breath of life. He's a physical, spiritual being. God is as concerned with what you do with your body as what you do with your soul. Because it's just never your body acting, and it's never just your soul acting. You always act, and you always think, and you always live as a physical spiritual being that and that unity is only torn apart at death 
That, that's what makes death so terrible. It rips apart the unity of man. It rips apart body and soul. I like that phrase that God breathed into his nostrils, the breath of life. That has all the intimacy of a kiss. That here you see the creator bending down in intimacy and breathes into man's nostrils the breath of life. And that moment he became a living soul. And notice where God put him. And the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden. And there he placed the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing in the sight, in his sight to the sight, and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God placed Adam in a beautiful, wonderful environment. And there was two trees indigenous to the Garden of Eden. One was the tree of life. We'll talk more about another day. We'll eat some of the fruit of it this, later on in our worship service. And the other was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, what were the purpose of these two trees? They had the function of sacraments. The tree of life was not only a symbol of life at its highest potential, of eternal life in the presence of God. It also sustained that kind of life. If Adam had not have disobeyed God, he would have eaten from it. Uh, the tree of life that would sustain his eternal life forever and he never would have died. The other tree is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And its purpose was to remind the human race who's the boss. God said you can eat from every tree in this garden except one. And the day you eat of that tree you will die. So the tree of knowledge of good and evil was a symbol, a pledge that God is sovereign and man is servant. That God is creator and man is to obey. So remember that as we go along. And now notice the detail with which Moses is describing the location of the Garden of Eden. Verse 10, Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and for there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. The bdellium and the onyx stone are there. And the name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. Now, of course, he's, he's describing them and giving them names as he knows them because Eden had been washed off the face of the earth. We know that Eden is somewhere was somewhere around the Black Sea, somewhere in the area of Armenia, Turkey, Iran, somewhere back in there. Now, why is he going to all this trouble telling you the location of the Garden of Eden because he wants you to know this isn't a myth. He wants you to know he's talking about a real place that can be identified in a real map. And he's not just telling bedtime stories. He's talking about a garden that really existed and God created a man to live in that garden. And notice what God told Adam to do. Verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. 
He created, created the first human being on the face of the earth and gave him a job that required manual labor. He was a blue-collar worker. Wasn't a white-collar worker. He dignified manual labor by being the first man given the first job to be an obedient gardener. To keep this garden clean and green. You've got cultivating to do. You've got plowing to do. You've got all the things that you need to do in order to keep this garden fruitful. Well, that's a good description about your goal and your purpose in this life. You're to be an obedient gardener in all the gardens of your life. The garden of your own heart, the garden of your home, the garden of your business, the garden of your children. Your responsibility is to keep them all clean and fruitful, to cultivate them and not neglect them. You, like Adam, have been created as a manager of creation. You're to manage everything about your life, everything you set your hand to to the glory and honor of Almighty God. And you don't neglect any aspect of it. So here Adam was placed in this garden and he was called upon by God to cultivate it and to keep it green and clean. And one great application is don't look down your nose at people who spend their life in manual labor. I don't even like the distinction blue-collar worker from white-collar worker. See, God's a worker. And a man's never more like God than when he's working. When he's working with his hands. When he's getting dirty. When he's scratching himself. Don't ever make fun of a man. And think because you have an office job. And you never have to get dirty. That he's beneath you. So Adam was to be an obedient gardener. And then God said something to him in verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. One tree. Adam, you can eat everything else. I don't want you to eat from this tree. I'm testing you. I'm putting you on probation. If you eat of this tree during this time of probation, you'll die. But during this time of probation, if you don't eat of the tree and you obey me perfectly in all the other mandates I give you, I'll give you unlosable eternal life. See, that wasn't the only command God gave Adam in the Garden of Eden. He gave Adam some creation mandates. Remember what they were? Be fruitful and multiply. Procreate. Subdue the earth and exercise dominion over it. Rest on the Sabbath day. Work hard at cultivating the, the, the garden. Because when you work hard, carrying out your calling, to the best of your ability, you are never more like God. You never more clearly manifest the image of God than when you're involved in hard, meaningful work. Now, what we have in verses 16 and 17 is called in theology the covenant of works or the covenant of life 
or the Edenic covenant or the covenant of creation or the covenant of commencement. It has all kinds of names. But one thing we see, and I'm going to spend the rest of the time talking about this, is about a word that's not even in this text. But the idea is there. God entered into a covenant with Adam in the Garden of Eden. See, God was not only the sovereign and Adam was the subject. God was not only the creator and Adam was the creature. There was even more intimacy between God and Adam and Eve. God was the covenant God and they were his covenant people in fellowship and in communion with him. Now, when we talk about the covenant works, and remember when I say covenant works, it can also be the covenant of life or the covenant of, of creation or the Edenic covenant. When I speak of the covenant of works, understand I'm not talking about the covenant of grace. The covenant of works is not the covenant of grace. It's not the covenant you and I are under. God never uh, relates to a human being except in terms of a covenant. And throughout the history of mankind, there have been two different distinct covenants. One is called the covenant of works, and the other is called the covenant of grace. The covenant of works has promises and it has threats. God says, you can eat of any tree of the garden you want to eat of. But if you eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. This was a probation period. God was testing Adam, not just as a private individual, but as the covenant head of the human race. Anything that Adam did in the covenant of works, you and I experienced the consequences of. He wasn't just acting for himself. He was acting as a representative of the whole human race. The, the word covenant is not found in Genesis 2, but all the elements of a covenant are participants, promises, curses, let me read to you a couple places where this covenant is referred to so that you can see it's not something we read back in the Scripture. It's something that's clearly revealed in Scripture. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 33. And you'll see one reference to the covenant of works. In Jeremiah 33... And let's start reading with verse 19. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night, so that day and night will not be at their appointed time, then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant, that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and with the Levitical priests my ministers. And the host of heaven cannot be counted, and the sand of the sea cannot be measured. So I will multiply the descendants of David my servant, and Levites the ministers to me. Now what's he saying? Jeremiah is saying to Israel, God made a covenant at the very beginning of creation. And he's always been faithful to that covenant. And if he is being faithful to the covenant made with Adam at the beginning of creation, he's going to be faithful to every promise he's ever made to you. So there is one reference to that covenant. But you say, Joe, it'd really be great if there was somewhere in the Bible where it was specifically mentioned. 
Well, there is. So turn to Hosea. Hosea chapter 6. And in verse 7. Now, liberals are so against having a covenant of works that they change this verse around. But in Hosea 6, 7, it says, But like Adam, they, Israel, have transgressed the covenant. There they have dealt treacherously against me. Now, let me tell you how some English translations say that. Israel has broken their covenant with God like men. Not like Adam, but like men. Well, there's two problems with that. Number one, there's no other way for a man to break a covenant than like men. So, Secondly, it's not plural. And then you have other liberals who say uh, that it's a place. That Israel transgressed its covenant with God at Adam. Well, the only problem with that is you can look at every map in the every Bible printed and you'll never find a place called Adam. There was no place called Adam. What it says in Hebrew is, like Adam, Israel transgressed the covenant. In other words, just like Adam transgressed the covenant God made with him. Israel has broken the covenant that God made with her. So here you have a reference specifically to a covenant that God made with Adam in the Garden of Eden. Now what did he promise Adam? He promised Adam that if he would not eat of this tree of knowledge of good and evil. He would live forever with an unlosable eternal life. But if he ate one time from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he would die. Now, let's go ahead a few verses. Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree, right? We know they ate of the tree of good and evil and went on to live 900 more years. But God said, in the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. And they lived 900 more years. They died spiritually the moment they ate of the tree. They died physically 900 years later. But they died spiritually. And were separated from God spiritually. And had to be kicked out of God's home. The very split second. They disregarded God's sovereignty over them. And said in so many words, we don't want to live in terms of God's standards. And God's definitions. And God's boundaries. We want to determine good and evil for ourselves with no reference for God to God. And you know, that's the heart of humanism. Every humanist today alive has the same religion as Adam and Eve. That is the blind faith that we can determine good and evil for ourselves without any reference to God. That we can define what's good and what's evil, and we do not need God to do it. We don't need the Bible to do it. I was on a radio talk show one time, Neil Bortz, and he was telling everybody in Radio Land what a fool I was, and I was sitting right there by him. And he told them what I believed was wrong and everything he believed was right. So I stopped him and I said, now, everybody's listening in. And I said, Neil, I'm glad to hear that in your worldview you make a distinction between good and evil. He said, I sure do. I said, well, I make a distinction between good and evil too. And the standard that I use 
is the Word of God. Whatever the Bible says is evil is evil. Whatever the Bible says is good is good. What standard do you use, Neil? And he said in so many words, that's what he prefers to believe. So I said, you mean you're trying to get all these people out here in Radio Land to believe what you believe, and the only reason you have to believe what you believe is that's what you prefer to believe? You don't have any other standards? He broke for a commercial. And he said, Joe, this is my show. I asked the questions. And we never got back to the subject. But that's the way all non-Christians think today, just the same way Adam and Eve. We want to determine good and evil for ourselves. We don't want anybody else telling us what's good and anybody else telling us what's evil. And that's why eating of that fruit was such a wicked thing. It wasn't just eating the fruit. It was eating the fruit in defiance of God and in an attempt to play God in their lives. That's the, what made it so hideous. And that's why God said that if you eat of this fruit, surely you will die. So understand that you can't understand the covenant of grace unless you understand the covenant of works. If you don't understand the covenant of works that God made with Adam in the Garden of Eden, you'll never understand the covenant of grace and the mediatorial work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because what that Jesus, you remember, is called the last Adam. He got the first Adam. He got the last Adam. Both of them were heads of a covenant. Both of them were representatives of somebody. And both of them, whatever each one of them did, the people they represented experienced the consequences of. You can say that the scalps of every human being that's ever lived hang from the belt of either Adam or Jesus. Now let's see where we get this. Paul made a big deal of this, a big deal. Turn to the fifth chapter of Romans. The fifth chapter of Romans. This explains why the covenant of works is so important to understand. Therefore, verse 12, just as through one man sin entered into the world, who do you think that's talking about? Adam. Just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So here you have a statement that says, why are we all sinners? Why is it that everybody's born a sinner? Why is it that everybody dies? You know, the Bible's the only book in all the ancient religious documents. The only book that explains how man came to be a sinner. And the reason every human, the reason there, every human being is a sinner, and the reason every human being dies, is because they're experiencing the consequences of Adam's actions. So that through Adam, as our representative, sin entered the world. And death through sin. But then you got a phrase here that people like to twist around. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Aha! It's a contradiction in that verse. 
Deaths, we're all sinners, and all of us die because all of us sinned. We, we all sinned. Not because one man sinned back there a long time ago. But we all sinned because all, all of us sinned. This is why preachers should know Greek. Because the phrase, because all sinned, is a kind of a past tense verb called the aorist. And that tense points to one action in the past. Not an ongoing action, but one particular action in the past. So what it says is this. We all sinned, we all died, because at one particular moment in the past, all of us sinned in that moment. That's what it means. There was one moment in ancient history when every single one of us died, uh, sinned in that very moment. And that's why we all die. What do you reckon was the moment when all of us sinned in ancient history? When our representatives sinned? When the head of the covenant of works sinned by disobeying God? All of us sinned in Him. We were one with Him in that sin. Say, well, I don't like that. I want to represent myself. I don't want somebody else representing me. I probably could have done a better job than Adam did in eating that fruit. Well, if you can't, if you don't want representation in the Garden of Eden, you can't have representation on Golgotha. You complain, you say, I don't like Adam representing me, but I sure am glad Jesus did. Same God thought up the same plan of salvation. All the human race suffers the consequences of Adam's sin because we are one in him. And all who belong to Christ are one with him, experience all the consequences of his life and death. Let's keep reading Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned in Adam. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. But the free gift of salvation is not like the transgression of Adam. For if by the transgression of the one, Adam, the many whom he represented died, much more by the grace of God and the gift of the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many whom he represented. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, Adam. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from transgression, from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. And he says, even though Adam represented us and Christ represented us, there is a difference. All of us suffer the consequences of Adam's one sin. Unless we're in Christ. And then in Christ, we who've committed many transgressions, countless transgressions, will not face judgment because of the obedience of Jesus. You see, you are saved from your sin by obedience. Don't let anybody tell you you're not. 
The only way to be saved from your sin and not go to hell is by obedience of Jesus in your place. Let's go on. For if by the transgression of the one man, Adam, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in, uh, in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. That's the gospel. Through the one transgression of Adam, everybody whom he represented is condemned. That's why Jesus said, if you, if you don't believe, you're condemned already. There's no more, no, more, no more probation. You're condemned from the moment you come from your mother's womb. Why? Because just like you inherited the color of your eyes and your hair and bodily features from your parents, you inherited a sinful nature and death and condemnation from your great-great-granddaddy Adam. See, I don't like, like it. That's the way it is. There is no other life. Verse 19, For as through the one man's disobedience, the many whom he represented were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one Jesus, the many whom he represented will be made righteous. So in Romans 5.12, you've got two Adams. One's as historical as the other. They were both actual men. And in Romans 5, you have two, the word many referring to two different people, groups. The many whom Adam represented and who will suffer the consequences of his sin is every single human being in the whole wide world. Everybody that had Adam and Eve as, as their forebearers. That's all of us. The whole human race, everybody in the whole human race is condemned because Adam sinned. We die because Adam sinned. We're born sinners because Adam sinned. And if anybody is saved... It's because we are no longer in Adam, the first Adam, but have received the last Adam as our Lord and Savior. And now we no longer get what Adam deserved. We get what the last Adam deserved. Life. Freedom from condemnation. Transformation of character. Forgiveness of sins. It all depends from whose belt your scalp hangs as to whether you go to heaven or hell. Who represents you in the court of God? The first Adam or the last? If you don't understand the covenant of works, you won't understand the covenant of grace. Because you see, the covenant of grace was a covenant of works for Jesus. For you and me to be saved, Jesus had to do what Adam failed to do and obey God perfectly. And so we stand before God uh, forgiven because the last Adam did what the first Adam failed to do. 
That's the gospel. Let us pray. Great God Almighty, we thank you for the way you've worked out salvation. We thank you for saving us from our union to Adam by making us one with Christ. May we never forget that. And may we always be faithful to him. May we always be faithful to you and obey you, not because obeying you saves us, but because we love you for sending your Son to obey perfectly in our place. And that motivates us, oh God. That motivates us to believe and to be good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us stand and confess our faith of the triune God by reciting together the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Be seated. Communion serves the same purpose that the tree of life would have served for Adam. That if Adam had not have eaten of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he would have eaten of the tree of life and that tree of life and the fruit of it would constantly sustain his eternal life. You've been given eternal life from the last Adam. This sacrament by the power of the Holy Spirit sustains that new and eternal life you have in Christ. So taking the Lord's Supper is a big thing. It is as big as Adam eating from the tree of life in the Garden of Eden at the beginning of the human race. So when you come to this meal, understand it's not an empty ritual. It's eating sacramentally the fruit that sustains eternal life. Let us pray. We thank you, Father, for this.